here in our sanctuary. Thank you for joining us tonight by media stream uh, as we continue on in a study that takes us through the entirety of the Bible. We're really at about the halfway point right now. Another, another four months or so, we will be completely through uh, the Word of God. And, of course, this is a mountaintop study in that we're just hitting a lot of the high spots of the Bible. But our prayer together is that it is giving us a good view of the entire stream of the Bible and the love of God that is the constant theme of the Bible. And the ups and downs of human life and the way God continues to be great, graceful and grateful that we are his children and he guides us uh, even when we fall and even when we have our problems. He does not withdraw from his children. We see that in God's word. Tonight we're going to continue on in that study. So welcome class here in the sanctuary. Uh, welcome as you join us by streaming. Uh, also as we uh, gather tonight, tonight is the first night we have a great youth group. They're socially distancing, but we, our youth group has come back together uh, between the social hall and an outside meeting. Uh, so we're glad that we're seeing our youth getting back involved in the, in the flow of the church and in ministry. So let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Our Father, our God, we love you. We're so thankful, Father, that you love us so much that through your grace, you allow us to be your children, Father. Uh, we thank you, Father, that as we come together tonight, we know that we're opening your word. And the book of the Revelation teaches us that everyone is blessed when we read your word, Father. That is the opening of Revelation. That's the beginning of understanding how Revelation is to be read. And yet, Father, I believe that those words apply to the entirety of the Bible. And so, Father, I pray tonight that you will bless us as we open your word, as we study its truth, as we see human beings with their ups and their downs. And, and Father, we thank you that you forgive us in our sin and lead us on in your forgiveness and in your grace. So tonight, Lord, we pray a blessing on our young people as they are meeting for the first time in several months uh, because of this COVID-19 thing, Lord, but we're thankful that they are together tonight, and I went over and visited with them, and they, there seemed to be such joy that they were back together. We're grateful, Father, for that. Thank you for everyone who is a part of this study tonight, and we pray you will bless us in it and through it, and we pray, Father, that you will truly be our teacher. We love you and thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, tonight we are in lesson number 17. Uh, our overall heading uh, is uh, the kingdoms and the prophets. Uh, if you did not get a study sheet back there that's right at the, at the center door, before you leave, do so. There's some very important information. I will give it to you tonight, but it's printed on that sheet. If you're watching by stream and you would like to go a little bit later to our website and download the study sheet for tonight, and the note sheet for tonight, there's some information on it that I will include in this lesson. I want to warn you tonight, this lesson is probably the most intricate, the most fact-filled lesson of all 32 lessons. Uh, there's a lot of information. You must 
Take notes. If you're going to retain any of what I'm going to tell you tonight, there's so much I'm going to tell you that you need to write down the essentials of the notes. Uh, it's, it's really important that you do so uh, because you'll never be able to hold all of this in uh, as I give it to you tonight. Lesson 17. Tonight deals with David and Solomon. Two kings, a father-son, and that's what we're studying tonight. We have studied the life and the legacy of King David in the last lesson, uh, pretty much exclusively last week using the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel covers the reign and the kingship of David from the beginning to the end of his kingship. But here's a fact that many students of the Bible do not know. Here's one of those notes I want you to write down, uh, and it's this. 1 Chronicles... In your Old Testament, 1 Chronicles covers the same material and the same time period as 2 Samuel. 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel cover the same material and the same time frame. So you're getting history repeated uh, between those two books. You need to know that. Now, there, there's a kind of layout of the six books that are right in a row in your Old Testament. There are six books in a row, 1 and 2 Samuel. 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Six books right in a row. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Now, many people, especially people who have not been deeply entrenched in studying the Word of God, uh, and even students of the Bible don't know that because uh, if they don't spend so much time in the Bible, uh, a lot of time these books uh, are not familiar to us. Now, be honest. How many of us really go to one of those six books on a regular basis? Not many of us uh, in those six books. So there's something that you need to know. Uh, but when we do read those six books of the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice as you read them is the repetition of facts. You'll read something and say, wait a minute, I read that back in another one of these books. So these books cover a lot of the same material. Uh, and it gets confusing in the timeline as you put these six books in a row. I want to give you a general understanding of how those six books are laid out. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Okay, write this down. First and, or it's also printed on your sheet. If you have a study sheet, this is on that sheet. First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are one timeline. So as you begin with 1 Samuel and read through 2 Kings, you're reading a chronological narrative, a chronological order of how history is laid out. It's an ongoing narrative. So you move through history as you move through those four books. But then you get to 1 and 2 Chronicles. And 1 and 2 Chronicles backs up and covers the same material of the first four books. And you can get tangled up in the history if you don't understand that. If you don't know that, First and Second Chronicles is a repetition of those first four books. Uh, but let me muddy the waters just a little bit more. You ready? Uh, there's a primary difference between Chronicles and Samuel and Kings. First and Second Chronicles focuses on the religious history of Israel. But... 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings focuses on the political history of Israel. So those books have different focuses that they're really, uh, that they're really centering on. 
Again, if you don't know those little facts, you can get so tangled up in, in understanding how time flows and, and how the facts come about uh, as you look at those six books. Well, you have that little outline, and again, you can download that on our website, but you have that little outline, and these books won't be so confusing as you read through them. Now, just also bear this in mind. The books of the prophets, the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets, and you get to the section of the prophets, which is the end of the Old Testament, all of the prophets fit into the time frame of those six books. Okay, does that make sense? So you're in the same time frame. The prophets are fitting into the history of 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Uh, that's where the prophets are going to fall in. We'll learn a little bit more about the prophets as we begin that study next week. But I just want to drop that in uh, very quickly and briefly. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we've talked about the revelation of David's sin with Bathsheba. Remember the prophet Nathan, who was a friend and an advisor to David, comes to him and confronts him into facts that David thought he had hidden. He thought that he had covered his tracks in his sin with Bathsheba, a baby, a murder. Uh, he thought it, he'd covered it all very well. Uh, but David is caught and cornered as an adulterer and as a murderer. Sadly, the child of that adulterous affair did pass away. But I want you to underline this verse. We're going to be in 2 Samuel at the beginning here tonight. So if you will, turn with me. Turn with me at home. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. I've used this verse often as David deals with the loss of this child uh, that was from his affair with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. As David grieves the loss of that child. Here's what he said. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now think about that. That's a beautiful verse. He says, my son is in heaven, and one of these days I will go to see him. He will never come back from heaven to me, but one of these days I will go to him. I love that verse. I love what it says. I love the hope that David gives us that my baby is in heaven. If anybody ever asks you, are you sure that newborn babies and babies, children, do they go to heaven? The answer is in that verse. Yes, absolutely. This man of God, David, the man who was after God's own heart, said, my son is there, and one day I will join him. That also gives hope to those of us who have lost a little one along the way. Gwen and I have a little one in heaven that we're going to meet one of these days. Many of you here have been through that same ordeal. That verse doesn't give us hope. I love that verse. But now look what happens immediately after that particular verse as David has married Bathsheba. The next verse, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, they say farewell to this one little baby gone on to heaven. In verse 24, And David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went in unto her, and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. So David has a new son by his wife now, Bathsheba, but another son who is older, a son of another relationship, another marriage, rises up against him. 
You remember that son's name? His name was Absalom. And Absalom rises up and attempts to steal the throne from his father. In fact, Absalom tries to murder his own father in order to take the throne of kingship away from David. It was a, a, a terrible relationship. In fact, battles ensued. David had to run from his life from his, for his life from his own son. A battle takes place, and sadly, Absalom dies in that battle. Now, remember, David has been through this horrible rebellion of his son. His son tried to take his life. David had to run from his son in order to preserve his own life. But in a battle for the throne, Absalom dies. And even though his son had rebelled, tried to steal the throne, had tried to kill his father, David is devastated that Absalom has died. How many of you remember a sermon of 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 50 years ago? I, I pray that maybe one of these days I'll preach a sermon you'll never forget. But there's a sermon that I remember from my teenage years when my pastor, Morris Campbell, preached on Absalom at my church in Stanton. And I'll, I just forever remember this verse. I remember the way Jack Campbell read this verse as he preached on the loss of Absalom and David's grief over the loss of his son. Go with me to 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. As much as David had been through with his son... As much as his son had rebelled and tried to murder him and David was running from him at his death, David is so moved. And in verse 33, chapter 18, And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Can't you feel the pain in a father's heart with those words? Those words just kind of welded to my mind and my heart when I was a teenager, of the father's grief in that loss. Well, after Absalom dies, David fully regains his throne, but David does not fully regain his peace. You know, you can have everything in the world and, and all the things that the world can offer, as David had when he was king, but he did not have peace. Now, we won't go into the Scripture tonight, but David angers God. And the, the, the reason for the anger is that he directed a census to be taken over Israel, and it displeased God that David was going to do this thing. If you want to read the Scripture about that, it is 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's also repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Read about David bringing forth this census over Israel and how it displeased God. And because David has angered God, he's going against God's will. God has made the decision that he is going to punish all of Jerusalem because of David's sin, because David was ruling over them. 
And here's how David approaches the Lord in this sin and approaching God in this moment of punishment. This is in the very last chapter of 2 Samuel. So go to chapter 24 and go to verse 10. Chapter 24, 2 Samuel, verse 10. And this is where David approaches God to say, David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now go on to verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arana, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me. And against my father's house. I want you to notice that David says, Lord, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who brought this against my nation of Israel. Don't punish your sheep Israel. They have nothing to do with this. I'm the one who brought about the sin. Punish me. But don't punish my people. I will take the brunt of the punishment. Now, in order... To honor the Lord. Here David now is is going to come back to God. He wants to reestablish his faith uh, and and his honor of the Lord. Uh, I want you to remember from the last lesson. We'll cover this point a little farther down the line tonight. But I want you to remember from the last lesson that God tells David as much as David wants to. Remember David said in the last lesson, "I, I live in a house of cedar, which is a very fancy residence of the king. And yet my God dwells in a tent, a tabernacle. That's not right. Here I'm living in luxury. My God's living in a tent. It's not right. I want to build my God a house. Do you remember in the last lesson that I told you, God said, David, I appreciate the way you feel, but you will not be building the house for me. Tonight you'll find out why God told him that. But I remind you of that. But in order to honor the Lord and come back to a relationship with God after he'd failed him with this census, And God was displeased, and God was angered, and David wants to reestablish his relationship with God. He goes to a man of Jerusalem named Arana and offers to purchase his land in order to build the temple to worship God. So David knows he's not going to build the temple, but he wants to begin the process by purchasing the land, and that's an honor to his God, that he's beginning the process. He's providing the land. So I want you to look at 2 Samuel 24. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. Chapter 24, start with verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king. He was shocked when he looked and saw the king coming. Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? 
And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. Again, he wants to honor God so that this plague leaves the people. This punishment leaves his land. Okay, so do you notice here when he comes to this Jebusite named Arana, he said, I, I want to buy a piece of land from you. I want to buy your threshing floor. He's very specific in what he wants to purchase. That's the place on a farm where the grain is separated from the chaff. It's called the threshing floor. How do you separate wheat out of the chaff? You beat it. You beat it. You roll over it with spikes. You, you, you literally punish that wheat shaft in order to separate the germ of wheat from the chaff that contains it. You have to beat the wheat out of it. Do you know what that comes to represent in God's Word? The punishment and the judgment of God. The threshing floor stands for the judgment of God. So David is responding to God's judgment by purchasing a threshing floor for worship. He's asking forgiveness here. Lord, I've been through the punishment. I want to ask your forgiveness. Arana is so humbled that the king came to him. You can see that in these verses when he lifts up his eyes and here comes the king in the entourage uh, all of a sudden and he wants to know why you're here. But Arana is so humbled that the king came to him for this threshing floor purchase that he actually offers to give it to David. But David says, no, I, I don't want to accept it. I don't want to accept this as a gift. It has to cost me something. I have to pay for it. Look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. In response to Arana's offer of this gift of land, and even the animals, Arana was going to give him the animals for sacrifice there, David says this, 2 Samuel 24, 24. And the king said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Do you notice David said, I've got to pay you something for this. When I give an offering, I want it to cost me something. Uh, I think that's a very important principle for us to understand, that sacrifice costs us something. When we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as our Savior, it costs us something. It costs us giving him our life, giving him our talent, giving him our service. Uh, and I believe, you know, none of us should have this, this opinion that, that serving the Lord is a free ride. Somebody else will do the ministry. Somebody else will take care of the work. Somebody else will give the tithe. Somebody else will, will do the, the things that need to do, we do for outreach to the community. We shouldn't have that opinion. Not one of us. But salvation costs us something. It's the surrender of our lives. And so David said, no, I won't accept a free gift. I want to pay for it. I want to give it to the Lord. Now, you'll notice here that uh, David pays 50 shekels to Arana for this gift. In today's dollars, now I'm just kind of looked this up. You know, Google does everything. Uh, basically, 50 shekels is somewhere $2,000, $3,000 in today's money. It's not much. 
but that was for the immediate threshing floor. That was kind of the footprint for where the temple would stand. So it wasn't a very big piece of land. The temple was not a very big building, really. Uh, some of you have been to that place, and you can tell us about how big that building was, but uh, it was not a huge building. So he bought, literally he bought the footprint of the building where the building would stand. Uh, it wasn't a very big piece of land, so he didn't have to pay a lot for it. But in the mirror account, remember we're talking about how Second Samuel is mirrored in First Chronicles. In the mirror account of this purchase, in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 25, it says David paid 600 shekels of gold for the larger plot of land. So that plot of land didn't just hold the, the uh, footprint for the temple building, but for the outer courts and the gathering places for the temple to have all the people surround it. And it says that uh, he paid a great deal of money for it, 600 shekels of gold for that larger plot of all of the temple grounds. Basically, in today's dollars, he paid somewhere around $600,000 for it, so over half a million dollars he paid for the land upon which the temple would stand So pretty substantial purchase for a relatively smaller piece of land. But David bought the land. He did not want it given to him. Uh, but again, you remember now, God told David, you will not build the temple. Someone else will build the temple. Why did God tell him that? There's a reason. The answer is in 1 Chronicles, if you want to turn with me. 1 Chronicles, if you want to flip over to there. At chapter 22, I love to hear your pages turning or see your iPad going to it. First Chronicles 22, look at verses 6 through 10. Here's the reason David could not build the temple for God. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me... It was in my mind to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest." And I will give him rest from all of his enemies round about, and for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build an house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So the reason God said, David, you will not, you cannot build the temple for me is because you have been a man of war. And your armies have shed much blood on the earth. It was a righteous thing. It was a godly thing. But because you were a man of war, I'm choosing that you not build the temple. I'm going to give the building to your son Solomon, who will be a man of peace. I'm going to allow the nation of Israel to be at rest from its enemies so that Solomon will have the time uh, and the inclination to build the temple uh, as a righteous man. So David's son, Solomon, who is, remember, uh, the son of David and Bathsheba, would succeed him as king. And before King David dies, he passes this advice to Solomon. Again, a godly passage, a wonderful passage. I want us to look at the kingly qualities 
that David passes to his son Solomon. Look at now, we're going to go back to 1 Kings. Go backwards. 1 Kings chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel." So we see David giving kingly advice, passing it on to his son. If you want to be successful, son, this is what you need to do. Basically, three things he tells Solomon. He said, be strong in the Lord. And then secondly, he says, show thyself a man. What does that mean? Show yourself as a man of trust, a man of character, a man of integrity, a man whose word can be trusted. Show yourself a man. And then thirdly, he says, keep the charge of the Lord by walking in faith, by walking in obedience. And notice here he says, by walking in his word. You know, still, those, those are good words for our children. Uh, no matter how old our children are, uh, those are good words for us to pass on as godly leaders to those who are coming after us. David's words to Solomon fit us. So Solomon began as a king, following his father David, and he began well. And one night in a vision, one night in a dream, God tells Solomon, I want you to ask for anything in the world, and it will be given to you. And Solomon gives this godly, worthy request. And I, this, is one of those, this is one of those verses that I think about so, so often. I want you to turn with me. This, I, this one is underlined and starred around in red in my Bible, but I want you to look at 1 Kings 3, 7 through 9. So God says, whatever you want, Solomon, I'll give it to you. 1 Kings 3, 7 through 9. Here's the request. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? Solomon asks for wisdom. God says, I'll give you anything in the world, 
And God said, Lord, give me an understanding heart. Give me a heart and a mind of wisdom. You know, this, this is a passage that we leaders need to read often. I love the way Solomon says, I am nothing but a little child. I have hardly no understanding whatsoever. When I I read that verse again today, I thought about my little one-year-old grandson. You leave a door open, that boy's going to topple down the steps because he does not know what steps do yet. In the same way, we can topple down the steps of life so easily. And we need an understanding heart and an understanding mind that only God can give us. This, this is our request here, that, that we ask that same prayer as Solomon did. Well, well, Solomon asked for wisdom. God was pleased, and God gives Solomon supreme godly wisdom. And people seek him out for wisdom. i got a, I got a little passage. I want you to read this. I think it's, a, it's the greatest passage. Uh, if, probably most of you have read it. If it's not, you're going you're gonna to love this passage. 1 Kings chapter 3. Verses 16 through 28. I'm going to let you read that on your own. It's about two women who are disputing over a baby and how Solomon in his wisdom decides which one is the mama of this baby. It's the coolest passage, and you need to read it. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 28. People come seeking him. Queen of Sheba comes seeking him for wisdom. Uh, he builds this... He builds this reputation of being supremely wise. And, of course, he also then is given the the task of God to build this magnificent temple. Now, to this point, Solomon does so well in his kingship. He is wise. The nation is thriving. He is doing well. But he falters. Look at 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Here we go. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, uh, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them. Neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. He failed miserably before God. He became an extreme womanizer. 700 wives, good grief. 300 concubines, basically they were nothing more than baby makers. A child in Sunday school class, teacher asked, how many wives did Solomon have? And the child said, "Uh, 700 wives and 300 porcupines. (laughs) But these women came from pagan cultures. False gods, idol worship, and they led Solomon away from God. Friends, that's a warning to us all, not just about our spouse, but just that we live in a culture. That's the problem here, is that that Solomon brought in women from 
an idolatrous culture. And he, he got into their lifestyles and into their worship patterns and into their idolatry, and they led him away. Friends, we, we live in a, a country that can lead us away very, very quickly. And we must be very careful to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and his word and walk in faith. Solomon fell. The wisest man in the world fell into sin. The wisest man in the world fell into stupidity and fell away from God. It's a warning to us. And, of course, naturally, God Almighty is absolutely not pleased here. Because of this sin, after Solomon dies, God allows the nation to split again. Uh, the kingdom to the north, ten tribes, will be called Israel. And the kingdom to the south, which consists of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, will be called Judah. So what we have in David and Solomon was called the United Monarchy in that these two kings ruled over the entire nation of Israel. But because of Solomon's stupid sin, God punished them by allowing the nation to split. Uh, so now we are back into a divided monarchy, two parts of the same nation. Each kingdom is going to have its own kings, uh, and any good reference Bible will give you the list of kings so you can see how they fit in and what years they serve. Uh, Israel to the north never had a good king. All of them were clunkers. None of them were godly. None of them were good leaders. Judah had a few good kings. And Judah lasted longer than Israel did. Uh, it was not a good period of time. For several hundred years, uh, there was apostasy and chaos in God's people. Well, what happened to those two kingdoms? As we see history go on, what happens to those two kingdoms of Israel and Judah? Well, 720 B.C., Israel to the north, the ten-tribe nation. Israel to the north was destroyed by the Assyrians, and basically they disappeared as a people. They were utterly destroyed. That was 720 B.C. Judah lasted about 120 years longer. But in 601 B.C., Judah was overtaken and conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile in Babylon. This is the period of Daniel. When you're reading the, the, the book of Daniel, this is the period we're talking about where the Babylonians take over Judah and exile the people into Babylon. And Daniel and these teenagers are part of the group. They went into, in waves into Babylon. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of these people are going into Babylon in exile. That's the time period we're talking about here when Babylon takes over Judah. They were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then God allows them in, in His grace. He releases them from exile and they come back to Israel and reestablish the nation then. Sadly, sadly, Solomon built a beautiful, ornate, godly temple, and it was destroyed. And it was desecrated by Babylon and their king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. This is one of the darkest moments in the history of Israel. Uh, it was desecrated so badly that, that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar put pig feces on the altar. They, they completely desecrated 
the temple of God. What does it lead back to? Solomon's sin. The wisest man in the world gave into idolatry. And here's what happens to a nation in the sin of one man. We have to be careful and we have to keep our eyes on the Lord. Well, I hate to stop us on a downer note, but that's kind of where we are tonight. Uh, our next lesson is how God is going to speak to and call his nation back through the prophets. So next week we're going to begin our study of the next couple lessons will be on the major and the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Once we get through the prophets... Malachi is the end of the prophets. It's also the end of the Old Testament. So two more lessons in the Old Testament, and then we will go into the New Testament and begin to study there. A good study tonight. I know I gave you a lot of facts and a lot of figures. I hope you took some notes, but uh, if you download that study page, you'll have those notes about how all those six books flow together. And that's a very important point of the study tonight. Thank you for joining us by streaming tonight. Thank you guys in the booth for making it possible. Uh, a good night in God's house. Let's have a brief word of prayer. And thank you so much for joining us. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, it's, it's sometimes a little bit hard to teach these hard lessons of your word of how people fail you. But Lord, we need to hear this because it... It strengthens us to who we need to be. This is not just history that passed away, but this is history you preserved to teach us who we need to be. So I pray, Father, that we make the most out of a Bible study. It's not simply memorizing facts and figures, but rather it is informing us of how we are to keep our eyes on you and how we are not to fail you, and how we are not to be drawn into idolatry and godless things by our own society in which we live. That's what happened to Solomon. It can easily happen to us if we don't keep our eyes on you. Bless us, we pray. Thank you for this lesson tonight. Thank you for the history, Lord. And one of the things that we must stress in this as I close this lesson is that indeed... Uh, kings will fail you, and your nation failed you in so many ways, but you never left your people. Even in the worst of the circumstances, your grace and your love was still upon your people. You never withdrew from them and left them childless or as orphans. Father, the, the, the thread of your love that runs through the Bible teaches us and shows us that even in our worst days, we can count on you. Uh, even when we fail you, you never fail us. Sometimes you'll take us to the threshing floor. Sometimes you take us to the woodshed. But that doesn't mean you fail us. That just means you're pulling us back into your righteousness. So I pray tonight, Lord, that we are learning that through history, we can see the ways that we can keep our eyes on you. Bless us, we pray. Thank you for our audience who streams with us tonight and is truly a part of our Bible study. We love you, and we will continue on next week in Jesus' name. Amen.